Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome to today's podcast. Uh, I'm very excited for this episode. It's going to be really a part two of last week's episode, um, just continuing on with that discussion. So last week, if you haven't listened to that, I would recommend go listening to that because it was dealing with my original question of why Catholics have an extra seven books of the Bible than Protestants do. But it led me to many other questions about the general assembly of the Bible, how you know, or like how it was decided that some books should be used, some shouldn't be used. And then that led to, okay, so Protestants have 66 books, Catholics have um, 73, but then Greek Orthodox, I read that has more books and then like Book of Mormon, um, which kind of gets off to the weeds, but Mormons call, call themselves Christians. They claim, um, Christianity, but then have a whole other book. And so basically I was wondering why all of these are valid or not valid. If you can keep adding books, like you know, then Book of Mormon isn't really off the table. So anyway, I did a bunch of research this week. This topic, let me just tell you, gets so complicated. It is way more complex than I think I realized. I thought that the putting together of the Bible was pretty uniform and and pretty set in stone. I mean, before this, I wasn't even really aware that the Catholics had extra books. I somehow kind of missed that. So yeah, there's parts of it that are definitely um, decided formally, but a lot that was just kind of a general consensus, which I wasn't really aware of. So anyway, we're going to jump right on in and get into these. I'll kind of walk you through the series of questions that I had when I started researching this and then the answers that I found. So I think you'll find this really interesting. Okay, so again, I'm going to link all of the sources that I got uh, or that I used in the show notes so you can go reference those. But from Biblica, um, from the Biblica website, I just looked up some general information about how the Bible was assembled uh, before I got into the kind of the nitty gritty of it. So basically Protestants have 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. That list is known as the canon. So the canon is known as the set of books that are kind of improved, approved that were um, no thought to be inspired by God, and they are authoritative for faith uh, and life. So that's what God inspired and gave to man, was everything in the canon. So over time, uh, at least according to Biblica, they said over time, different churches, you know, knew of these writings and, and all of the other writings that weren't inspired. And they kind of there was started to be a general consensus about which ones were inspired and which weren't. Um, it wasn't like formally nailed down for a while, uh, but there was kind of a collective definition of what the canon was. And then it said in the year of 367 AD, there was a church father named Athanasius, I think. Um, and he formally listed out the 66 books of the canon. I think this is from a Protestant website because they say like he formally listed the 70 or the 66 books, but on another website that I found from Catholicism, it said that, um, the accepted canon was the original like 73 that they have. Um, and it wasn't really a debate until Luther, but anyway, so the first five books are the Torah and they were the first ones to be accepted as the canon. So, um, that was thought to be the, like, the fifth century before Christ. So a good amount of time before Christ, the other books were the prophets writings. So the old Testament is divided up between the law and the prophets. The law is the first five. The prophets are the other books. Those weren't put together into one singular form until 200 BC. It says, um, the rest, this one says the rest of the books were not solidified and accepted as Canon until right up until Jesus's birth, which that actually sounds like a Catholic um, argument about the canon because I did find other Protestant ones that said that the canon had been pretty much defined in practice. If not formally, it was practiced as a set canon much before Jesus's birth. So we're going to go into that some of that research. This also said that, you know, Jews were scattered around um, different regions. So solidifying the canon helped the people to stay united as uh, Jews reading the same stuff. So it was valuable to 
make sure that that was solidified. The New Testament was also gradual, and there was general acceptance of what qualified um, to be in the Bible and what was inspired by God. Um, that happened about two centuries after Jesus, and there were a ton of writings floating around. Um, but basically, eventually they needed to have one set of scriptures, and it was decided which ones were truth and which ones were to be rejected or that weren't inspired by God. So it was kind of a general consensus, consensus and it seemed to happen over a wide period of time. It wasn't just like, okay, here's the canon. Now that's one version of the story, honestly. There are different versions of this story that I have found on my research, of course. And so we will really get into the Catholic um, arguments and the Protestant arguments and see kind of what I believe after. So then I asked why Catholics and Christian, or I shouldn't say that, why Catholics and Protestants um, think that there are different numbers of books. I just, you know, we'll start there because that's the original. Like, I know it's in those seven books, but I don't know why they were included. So this is all from Blue Letter Bible. This was definitely the most thorough piece of information I found. It outlined every single, I mean, from what I've found, I haven't found a Catholic argument about this that ha wasn't in there. They really outlined all of the Catholic arguments and all the Protestant arguments very strongly. I feel like a lot of articles when, like, let's say you go to a Protestant website, they'll present the Catholic uh, argument as crazy and kind of stupid. And then they rip apart that argument. And it's like, well, that's easy. You presented it terribly. This website was really good because it made a very, very strong case for Catholic, the Catholic line of thought, and then, you know, tried to make it the strongest possible, and then went in and said why it thought that they were wrong. And I feel like it represented the Catholic viewpoint as well as I've seen any article represent the Catholic viewpoint. So I thought that was really good. Um, but anyway, so this is from blueletterbible.org. And these are the Catholic arguments for why these extra seven books should be included. So it said Catholics believe that the canon was still up for debate during Jesus's time. Basically the the Bible was or the canon was set in stone like around Jesus's birth or right before it. This one said that even when Jesus was born and stuff the canon was not set in stone yet. So um, it was still floating around and up for grabs as to what books were actually considered inspired by God. So it wouldn't be that they were adding any books. It was just that the canon was never set. And so it was yet to be decided, basically. Also, this article was saying that the, the Roman Catholic Church, since Jesus gave authority to Peter, um, that he has authority over the church and that the church is basically infallible. And so they believe, Roman Catholics believe, that the church has the final authority to determine the limits of scripture. So once they say these books are in the canon, like that's pretty much the end of the debate because that is seen as an infallible decision. And so they are, they have the authority basically to say what is and isn't scripture. So they read that authority given to Peter as authority to set the canon. So there were two councils that decided what books were a part of the canon and which ones were not. Those were called um, the Council of Hippo and Carthage, which are two northern Africa, uh, northern African cities. Um, so there were two councils that decided. So in those two councils, they decided that the extra seven books were part of the canon, the Catholic Church did. And they claimed that there was really not even a debate about that um, until... Luther came in and rejected those books as part of the Old Testament. Um, so they basically say and argue that the canon was never set. These two councils decided that those two books were in, um, were a good part of the canon, that they were inspired by God, and that no one had a problem with this, really, until Martin Luther didn't like, you know, some of the teachings in those books and decided to try to throw them out. And there was debate then about if those extra seven books were in or out. Um, so in response to the Protestant Reformation, they had to issue another decree at the Council of Trent, which is like a really famous council. And that officially settled the debate where um, Catholics definitely thought the books were good and to be included. But that Council of Trent 
was in response to the Protestant Reformation and Protestants, or I guess Catholics trying to split off um, to be Protestants, thinking that those books didn't belong. So that's why the Council of Trent happened, which formally made it, um, I guess, a rule that the books were in for the Catholic canon. So that led me to a question of why do Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox use a different canon? Because I had heard that they had even a different canon than Catholics, that more books were added. So, for example, First and Second Maccabees is not in the Protestant Bible, but it is in the Catholic Bible. But there were actually four books of Maccabees, and that the Orthodox religions use Maccabees 3 and 4 as well. So they're all included in their Bible. So I found this website from catholicbridge.com, which may be talking about... Um, Greek Orthodox churches, uh, usually I don't like to get information straight from like, if I'm talking about, let's say if I'm talking about Protestants, I don't like to get the, the information from Catholics because obviously they're going to be biased. So this is from a Catholic website about Greek Orthodox, which I usually don't like to do, but this one seemed pretty neutral in terms of just the history of like, or the customs of what they actually do. So this outline that Greek Orthodox churches sometimes do have almost the exact same canon as Catholicism. But their canon is less formal in the fact that they don't always, it's more regional. So like Greek Orthodox apparently don't use the, they don't think Revelation is inspired. And so they don't bind it as part of their canon and they don't read it in their liturgies. But Russian Orthodox do. So Russian liturgy accepts Revelation as a book of the Bible and they read it. So it seems to be more regional and less formal of a canon. So like sometimes they use uh, Maccabees 3 and 4, sometimes they don't. Sometimes Orthodox Bibles are like exactly the Catholic version and sometimes they add in the extra books. So it seems to be more regional and not as much of a formal declared canon like it is the Catholic Church. Okay, so let's get into the debate about whether these books should be included or should not be included. This was where things get very complicated. And honestly, some of the arguments that I found are so in the weeds that I'm not going to go into them because, I mean, I like to get in the weeds, but not even to that level. Um, because I, I think that there are other arguments that make it clear before you have to get into there. So um, I will just kind of warn you that the, I will just kind of warn you that the source I found that gave the like really accurate Catholic arguments, um, it does get very, very in depth. Like for some answers, there's like 12 points about each individual scroll that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and, and all that. But I think there are more convincing arguments, um, before we even have to get to that level. So I'll spare you some of those details. Um, but basically what we're going to, but basically what we're going to start with is We'll start with the Catholic arguments. Um, there's an argument that said the canon was not set, obviously. The Catholics think that there were three different canons that were still kind of in circulation at the time of Jesus. So one of them was used by the Sadducees, which was an extremely cut, like narrowed down version of, of the Bible. It was basically just the laws. They said that they rejected all other books of the Bible. Then there was like the... Palestinian Jews, and then there was a wider canon which included the seven extra books that were used by the Egyptian Jews. The other, the next argument is that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, which was established during the time of Maccabees, um, you know, and because it was seen that uh, in Second Maccabees, Jesus celebrates Hanukkah. Um, so if Hanukkah was a divine um, holiday, or I guess if it was established in that time, it was divinely inspired because the holiday was divinely inspired. Um, and I was reading this actually, and it kind of makes me want to celebrate Hanukkah, to be honest, uh, because I think like as Christians, um, we always think like, okay, we do Christmas and Easter, like Jesus' birth and resurrection. But the God that we worship is the same God, like our history is so intertwined with Jews. I mean, it is the, like our history is the Jewish history up until Jesus. So 
like Hanukkah is about God performing a miracle when they rededicated the temple. Um, sorry, this is a tangent, but basically I looked up what Hanukkah is and Hanukkah is when, um, basically a Jewish temple got destroyed in this battle because Jews were being persecuted under, um, the leader and I'm missing some details, but they were being persecuted. Their temple got destroyed. They rebuilt it and rededicated the temple and, all they could find to light the candle in that dedication or uh, sanctifying of the temple or whatever was a very small jar of oil and they thought it wouldn't last very long, but it miraculously lasted for eight days and it was like a reminder about how God is so faithful to the Jewish people. So that seems like a great holiday for Christians to also celebrate because that is our history. Like that history is our history because it was before Jesus. And so, um, it just is a great reminder that God is still faithful today. So anyway, maybe we'll have a menorah this next Christmas because yeah, like, I think we just don't really think about what some of these holidays actually mean. And so we're like, Oh, that's a Jewish holiday, but I don't know. It seems like a good reminder that God is faithful still. So, um, anyway, that was just a side note. Uh, but that is an argument about the canon that Maccabees is divinely inspired because um, Hanukkah is a divinely inspired holiday and it was created during the time of Maccabees. Um, the other, another argument by Catholics is that there are quotes in the New Testament that sound very, very similar to the Old Testament Catholic edition books, which those are called the Apocrypha, Ap Apocrypha, I think is how you pronounce it. So, there is an argument that the New Testament quotes the Apocrypha. And um, I hope I'm saying that right, but yeah. So, um, you know, why would the New Testament quote something that is not even scripture? And then the fact, the next, the last argument I'll bring up is the fact that a book was not, is just the fact that a book was not quoted doesn't mean it shouldn't be considered scripture. So apparently Protestants make this argument that some of those books were not quoted in the New Testament and therefore they're not um they, they're not scripture or they're not uh in the canon but that's I don't think that's a good argument honestly um because well first of all there's a lot of books that were not quoted that are universally accepted into the canon like Ruth Chronicles Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are four examples. But the other one is just that, like, you can't prove something based on the absence of a quote. Um, like, Jesus didn't methodically go through and quote every single book of the Old Testament. And I think it'd be kind of, it's it's just hard to prove that. That doesn't really mean anything. Like, the lack of a quote doesn't mean it's not accepted. Um, it would be, the, the better argument, I think, is that if it's quoted, um, then yeah, it's probably scripture. Like if, if Jesus quotes a book, um, it's probably scripture and should be paid, paid attention to. Uh, so that's more, that's the more convincing argument, um, by, by the Catholics. And, and I really don't like the Protestant argument of like, it wasn't quoted, so it's not a book anyway. Um, okay. So here are the Protestant arguments kind of against those about why it's not included. So First of all, Protestants have an issue with how the Catholic Church is deciding these things. So the Catholic Church has a view more of, it has the authority to determine the canon. Now, sorry if you're a Catholic and I'm misrepresenting this, but this is as much as I as I could find, so DM me if it's wrong. But, but yeah, the Catholic Church thinks it has the authority to set the limits on the canon, and from then on, you know, that's just the canon. The Protestants look at it like they're trying to find the limits of the canon as opposed to declare it, where they're looking at biblical and historical evidence and they and each book needs to be proven for what it is, where it falls in history, what it's saying about these concepts, if it contradicts anything um, in the rest of the Bible, it needs to be proven historically and and biblically before it's a canon. And if it fails on any of those accounts, then it's not in the Bible um, because we're they're discovering uh, the limits as opposed to declaring them. So that's kind of a, 
a minor difference before we head into this, but uh, both agree that it was that the Bible was formed by divine inspiration and that it's God's word that he's giving humans, which is why both of them think it's so important to set the canon um, more formally because, you know, the Bible says don't add or subtract anything from the word. Catholics think that Protestants are are subtracting things from the word and Protestants think Catholics are adding things to the word and they both think each other are wrong and they both think it's extremely important to not get it wrong. So, um, yeah, this gets, it gets wild, but okay. So the Protestants argue that there was a set canon, um, when Roman Catholics believe there were none. So Roman Catholics said that Alexandria, Egyptian Jews used a wider canon, but the Protestants say there was no canon list that has ever been found, um, ever been talked about. Some, those Alexandria Jews, Egyptian Jews, were more influenced by the Greek thought, but that there was no evidence or no reason to believe that that expanded the canon in any way. They were more like culturally influenced by the Greeks rather than um, influencing the books that they read or the, the scriptures that they read. Um, so there's no hard evidence that says that, that the, the canon was expanded. Um, the other canon was Philo of Alexandra. So he didn't have a set list either, like a set canon, um, but he wrote about a lot of the books um, in the Old Testament. So a guy named Philo of Alexandria uh, also is used as proof that there was only one canon being used because he um, he didn't have a specific canon that he like wrote down, but he did write about a lot of books, all of which are in the Old Testament, like the original Old Testament that everyone agrees on. And he wrote about none of the extra, like the other seven books. He knew about the existence of them, the timing overlapped um, of the other books, but he doesn't ever mention that any of those seven are divinely inspired. Okay, then we go to the prologue of Sirach, which is, you know, one of the, the books that the Catholics accept into their canon. So the prologue to that says that it was written in Egypt, but it only accepts the traditional books. So the like I said before, the Old Testament is broken up into two categories. One is the law and the other is the prophets. The law is the first five books and the prophets are all the other books. The extra books are in a different category. That's not considered any of the, the prophet books. So the writer of the prologue of Sirach makes the distinction between the law and the prophets and all other writings. And he does not include his own book as um, one of the books of the prophets. He includes it as all other writings. Okay. And then the canon of the Sadducees, which was said to be way smaller. So Catholics say that the Sadducees had a smaller canon. Um, but Protestants say there was no evidence again that they actually accepted a smaller canon. In fact, a writer named Flavius Josephus, which is a great name, um, shows that they disagreed with things like doctrinal things, like uh, the role of angels or, or what angels were and did and the resurrection from the dead, but they didn't throw out the whole canon. He wrote about the full like Old Testament canon. And so it seems like even though he disagreed with some doctrinal things about how it was interpreted, uh, they still used the canon as pretty much set. So this article at least claimed that the canon, that Protestants argued that the canon had been closed in practice for at least four centuries before Jesus was born. So it's, yeah, it's like, you can go read a Catholic article, they say, oh, you know, the canon was completely up in the air. And then you go read a Protestant article and they say it was completely closed for 400 years. So, you know, I'm just going to present both sides. I really don't even think that this is where I was convinced about what I feel about the books. Um, it's going to be later. So, so this article also says that the canon had been closed in practice for at least four centuries before Jesus uh, was born, which is completely different than the Catholics claim. But this is why he is saying that. So in the book of Sirach, Sirach I really hope I'm saying that right, in Sirach, he, uh, the writer praises ancestors. So he starts with Enoch and he finishes with Nehemiah. Enoch is in Genesis and Genesis is obviously the first book of the Bible. And Nehemiah is the period when the last books were written. That's when um, Nehemiah was here, uh, was on earth. Basically, he's summarizing the entire Old Testament uh, from like Genesis to Nehemiah. So beginning to end. Um, and 
so he, so even in Siraj, which is a book that is, is claimed by Catholics as part of the canon, even in that, he is basically summarizing the Old Testament and it doesn't include any of his own works or any of the other writings. Now, part of this is kind of a weak argument, in my opinion, because in that same article, they said three of the books may have been written by then, and he doesn't mention those, which may have been written is very weak wording, and if it was not even sure, if, like, we weren't sure that the books were written or had circulated enough in time, then the fact that he doesn't mention those is really a non-argument. So that one's not... I, I don't buy, really buy that one. But what is more convincing is a verse in Sirach, which says, Instruction in understanding and knowledge I have written in this book, Jesus, son of Eliezer, son of Sirach of Jerusalem, whose mind poured forth wisdom. So he is not claiming divine inspiration. He is saying that his own mind is interpreting the old books and basically saying uh, wise things, which could definitely be true. But he doesn't claim divine inspiration from his book. Another thing is in First and Second Maccabees, there is some mention of basically a canon or the old writings. Um, so th again, it's split into two sections, the Law and the Prophets. First Maccabees mentions that it had been a long time since there was a, a prophet. So um, there would only be like a new canon if there was a new prophet. And in First Maccabees, they say, oh, there hasn't been a prophet in a very long time, which assumes Protestants used to mean that the canon is closed until, you know, as of the last prophet. And then 2 Maccabees says the writings were kept in a sacred place in the temple, which basically means they took all the writings and put them in the temple in that was sacred, which is effectively canonizing them um, to Protestants. So those books, the only books mentioned were the original Old Testament ones, not any of these uh, newer books, and so they take that to believe that that was the canon accepted by the Jews, and so the canon was pretty set in stone. Going back to the argument that there are direct quotes from the New Testament in the Old Testament, I mean, sorry, yeah, going back to the argument that the New Testament quotes some of the newer books or the, the Catholic accepted books, uh, in the New Testament, there basically are no direct quotes. So the Protestants argue, yes, they are. there are things that sound similar, but there are also things that uh, sound a lot, very similar to other parts of the Bible that are in the accepted canon. So for example, um, so for example, in Mark 10:19, Jesus uses a phrase, do not defraud. Catholics take that to mean he's citing Sirach 4:1. Sirach is paraphrasing the statements found in Deuteronomy, says this article. So Deuteronomy says, you must not oppress a lowly and poor servant, whether one from among your fellow Israelites or one from or from the resident foreigners who are in your land. So Sirach is using an Old Testament quote. Um, and Jesus uses the same two word phrase in Greek, but he's not directly quoting that passage as scripture. Um, especially because in Sirach, which I'll get into this later, but in Sirach, it basically says to not help others and kind of like oppress them, it seems like. So that's a whole other thing. But, uh, again, uh, in second Timothy two nineteen, it says that it's quoting Catholics will say it's quoting Sirach 1726, um, and in 2 Timothy 2.19 it says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from evil. Protestants argue it's not actually citing Sirach 1726. It's more likely referring to Job 36.10, where that same thing is found. Job 36.10 says, he opened also he openeth also their ear to discipline and commandeth that they return from iniquity. So um, there's like debate about if any New Testament stuff is actually quoting uh, Sirach. Most of those uh, quotes come from Sirach. Protestants think that Sirach, at the very least, was quoting other Old Testament things that were universally accepted by everyone, not just like his own thoughts. So yeah, that, that makes sense to me for sure. Even Protestants do like give and say that there are allusions to these new books, 
but they argue that it's kind of similar to a preacher using a quote from the popular literature today. Like if you were, if a preacher used like a Shakespeare line to make a point about a lesson, they argue it's kind of similar to that. So there's allusions, there's not direct quotes, and no one says that it was actual scripture or that it was divinely inspired. Okay, all that aside, because that gets very into the weeds about the canon, the timeline, who's quoting what, like that's all kind of deeper arguments, more intricate arguments. What I was more convinced by, like after I read all those, I wasn't sure about what I thought about if these books should be included or not. I still was kind of like, I think I was leaning towards no, because of the fact that it does seem like the canon was closed. Like it seems like everyone kind of accepted the same things. They used the other books maybe, but um, the fact that like the writers didn't claim divine inspiration uh, and they seem to mention the canon um, even after like that Flavius Josephus um, author those were definitely the the books were definitely written by his time the extra ones and he did not mention them as part of the canon so it seemed like there was a canon pretty set in stone and there wasn't a prophet for a long time so everyone was kind of going off the same thing that's mildly convincing to me plus i just tend to agree more with the protestant attitude of like we're trying to discover the limits and if there are major historical errors or biblical errors um then we're not going to accept the books Whereas the Roman Catholic Church is just like, we have the authority and now you can't question. That's how it came off, at least in a few articles I read. Um, so I was, at the end of that part of the research, I was more leaning towards these books should not be accepted. Especially because, as I mentioned last week, the stories of Esther and Daniel, from what I have gathered, were written all at once together, like the Protestant version was written at the same time with like eyewitness accounts. And then the extensions of at least Esther were put in hundreds of years later by someone who was not an eyewitness account. And it added like prayers that were not originally in there that made it sound kind of more religious um, or pious, as they said. And so I don't love, like I'm, I'm wary about adding additional things in later, especially that long after that no one was an eyewitness. So, um, so all of that to say, I was leaning towards saying these are probably not, they probably shouldn't be included, but this is what really convinced me. So if you have a set of books that are universally accepted as the canon and as truth, if you're wondering if a new book it should be added or is divinely inspired if it contradicts in any way uh, from the kind of accepted books of the time already, then you know it's probably not true. Like if you know that there is truth and eyewitness accounts and all that, and then you try to add in a new book that contradicts the old book, probably the new book isn't good. So I had heard arguments about there being historical errors in Tobit and in Judith. Basically, I've heard this argument a lot about that Protestants use. They just say uh, those two books have errors in them, historical errors, and so you can't trust them and they should not be used. Catholics, on the other hand, say that those books are more like parables that like Jesus would tell, and they're just a story that's fictional that has an underlying message in it. So it doesn't matter if there's historical errors. It would be kind of be expected that there would be because that's not the point of the story anyway. It's not like a historical record. Those two books are more like parables. So I'll give you that. Um, you don't know. And if it's more like a parable, I think they're right. It doesn't really matter. The problem is, is that the Protestants also argue other contradictions that I feel are more compelling than the argument that Tobit had, um, Tobit and Judith had historical errors. That's not that convincing to me. But the ones that are is contradictions internally with the books or contradictions between the old, like the Protestant Jewish canon versus these new books. If those have contradictions, that's more convincing to me. So the first one, and let me go off on a quick, <laughs> really quick tangent here. For so long, I was so confused about where Catholics were getting the idea of like purgatory, um, 
like praying to saints, having the intercession of saints, things like that, like all these doctrinal things. I was like, where are they getting these? These are not in the Bible. Turns out all of them are in these other books. So that makes way more sense. Um, but so here is some of the contradictions. So first and second Maccabees contradict each other. Um, one of them says that the Jews like fl uh, took flight or like uh, surrendered essentially or ran away because of fright and uh, lost. And then one of them says they ran away in victory. Um, that's between first and second Maccabees. Uh, first and Mac first and second Maccabees also disputes how the king died. One of them said that the king died in disappointment, and one of them said that uh, he came down with a serious illness. And then there is also a question on the timeline of the death of Elysius, which basically one says he died before uh, the death of this other king, and one says he died after. So there's multiple historical errors um, between 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which is kind of confusing because those ones I thought were considered more of like a historical record, but between 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they both have multiple contradictions within themselves. Um, so that's just like historical errors. But then the other ones are more doctrinal stuff. And this is where I wasn't sure where Catholics were finding these doctrines, but turns out it's all in these books. Um, so first one says that they are saved by works. So Tobit and Maccabees say that things can wipe out sin. So like Tobit says that giving of alms will wipe out sin. So Rock says a respect for your father atones for sin. So that is where the workspace stuff comes from. Ephesians 8, 9 said that for by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works so that no one can boast. So that is very clear. Ephesians is accepted by everyone. And then Tobit um, and Ecclesiasticus um, both said like respect for a father atones for sin. This one says Abraham was not found faithful when, or was not Abraham found faithful when tested and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So that one says basically Abraham earned his righteousness. Tobit says he gave alms and that, uh, gave him righteousness and atoned sins. And so that all those books, any works-based stuff is found in the additional books but Ephesians is very clear where it says it is not of works, so no one can boast. That's contradictory. That to me says, okay, well, whatever is contradicting Ephesians, which we know is correct, uh, is not correct. So that's pretty convincing for me that uh, those books, at least that doctrine should not be accepted. And then purgatory, which I was always confused about how Catholics were getting that. Now I know that makes way more sense. It's in 2 Maccabees. It mentions praying uh, for sin after you die. Um, it doesn't actually necessarily say anything about like suffering or being cleansed of sin in purgatory. It does talk about praying for the dead though. It says, for if you were not expecting those who had fallen would rise again, it would be superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for all those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore he made atonement for the dead so that he might be delivered from their sin. So that talks about praying for the dead. So the idea that there's the dead can benefit from prayers of the living. The next one is that the uh, God hears the prayers of, of the dead. So not only do the dead benefit from prayers of the living, but the living pray for the dead. Uh, that's found in Baruch, which says, um, God of Israel, hear now the prayer of the dead of Israel, the children of those who sinned before you. And nowhere else is that found in the Bible that the dead pray for the living. Uh, it's mostly like the dead are now with God and they're rejoicing and stuff. They're not like praying for the living down here. So, um, yeah, unless it's talking about intercessing for them, which the Catholics also believe that might be referring to intercessing. That's not found anywhere else um, other than Raphael, which is found in Tobit. There is a mention of an angel Raphael in revelation that does intercess. Um, so, but other than that, that's not found anywhere else. Uh, the old Testament apoc apocrypha also teaches the, about the preexistence of souls. So in wisdom, it says that 
a soul, it says a good soul fell to my lot or rather being good, I entered an undefiled body. So it talks about your soul being there forever and then just being put into a body where, again, that's not mentioned anywhere. It's like the soul comes into the body as soon as your body is formed, like the soul is created. The rest of the Bible basically makes it sound like the soul is created when the body is formed. So like at conception, your soul is also made. This one seems like it teaches that souls are always there. And then as soon as you're conceived, a soul enters your body. Okay. And then this one was actually the the worst one. This is what really put me kind of over the edge of being like, I don't think these books should be included. So Sirach teaches that we should not help sinners. And I was very confused by this one. So I actually went and read this passage and a couple other ones of Sirach because I thought like, maybe this is being taken out of context. Maybe he actually, maybe he was quoting like people who they said were evil do this because a lot of times they do that. They say fools think this. And then they outline the thoughts of fools for quite a long time. So I thought it was maybe something like that. But it it doesn't seem to be. So I went and read Sirach 12. And part of it says this. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them. For by means of it, they will might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good you have done to them. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but not do not help the sinner. So that is not, I don't think, what Jesus said. I mean, this gives some warning about, like, basically being a doormat to evil people, you know. But also, like Jesus said, to, like, turn the other cheek. If someone steals your coat, give them, you know, your other coat or whatever. This is what Matthew said. That This is in Matthew what Jesus said. You have heard what it is said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of God, of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So that's what Jesus said. And then Sirach said, hold back their bread and do not give it to them for by means of it, they might subdue you. Do not help the sinner. So that seems pretty contradictory. And the fact that this book is already like in question and he didn't claim divine inspiration for this book makes me think that definitely this book is not, should not be part of the Bible. Now he gives some good wisdom in the book, like other wisdom. Um, and maybe I would read that book and take some of the wisdom that he gave that does line up with the Bible. But that specifically is a no-go for me, I think. So basically then this article goes into a lot of historical errors from a lot of these different books. There's, I, I mentioned most of them, like the second, first and second Maccabees, how did the king die? There's errors in um, the bell and the dragon, which is like an extension of Daniel. Um, and there's like time differences that are off. So like Habakkuk lived and wrote 75 years before Daniel, so he wouldn't be alive at the time that all this happened to Daniel. Um, so it's like things that make it seem like there were no eyewitness accounts of these things, um, that they're just being added on later. So yeah, all of that is to say that, um, basically those are the two arguments. Catholics thought that the canon was not set in stone, that the Catholic church has the authority to decide them and so they included those extra books um those other books and protestants thought the canon was already closed they thought that those uh were not a part of the canon and you can really see the doctrine of the catholic church and the protestant church reflected in these differences i didn't realize that they were coming from completely different books of the bible i thought that the catholic church was basically using the Protestant Bible and taking a few steps of logic to get to their doctrines or their beliefs of like purgatory and praying to the dead and stuff like that. It's really just because there's different books that they're accepting as the canon that Protestants aren't. So it makes complete sense once you know the history of how the Bible was assembled and who's reading from what book that these doctrinal differences would be so apparent um, in 
our belief systems because yeah, we're reading from different books. If I accepted Sirach as a book, I'd be like, or second Maccabees, I'd be like, yeah, of course there's a purgatory. He said it right there. And for Protestants, that's nowhere in the Bible. So that's, that's why. So I had no idea. I thought that Catholics were just, uh, we're kind of inferring from some, from some logic because when I, also, I'm just going to go off on this tangent really quick. When I looked this up before and I didn't go into this, all this detail about how the Bible was assembled, who's accepting what version of the Bible, what what's doing this. I looked up, where do Catholics get the idea of purgatory? And they quoted a verse that was like in the Protestant Bible and then said they took this verse basically and took three logic leaps over here to say that there's purgatory, which is just not true. Like I'm, I get frustrated by the Protestant research, like by the research that Protestants sometimes put out saying, oh, they got it from this Bible verse that's historically accepted by both of us and they got to purgatory when that just seemed makes Catholics seem irrational in what they're believing. Uh, it doesn't show that, Hey, well in this verse that is not in the Protestant Bible, it's in only the Catholic Bible. They, that's where they got it. And then it's like, it's pretty easy to see where they got purgatory because it literally says that in their Bible. This article that I found that showed both outlined in a very thorough way made way more sense to me than half of the articles out there that just say, oh yeah, they, they took this verse and extrapolated it to this crazy conclusion. And I think that misrepresents Catholics. And even though I do, I don't agree that the books should be included. I do think that at least the argument should be presented better because it makes, it makes everyone think like, oh, that other denomination's crazy. Oh, that, that group is crazy. But there's a logical reason for most things. And it all started with the roots of how the Bible was assembled. So um, I thought that was super, super interesting. My understanding of this has gotten so much better and it, it does make a lot of sense about why, um, but why we have these doctrinal differences. And I definitely understand more where Catholics are coming from and where Protestants are coming from with their belief system. So that's all of the research that I have today. Um, and, oh, the other question that I mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast is why the Book of Mormon was not uh, included basically. And why, if Catholics think that the canon was still open, um, essentially why can't we just keep adding more books? That question really resolved itself when I realized that nothing in the new Testament is under review, I guess, or like under debate about what should be in the new Testament. So Protestants and Catholics both agree on that. The Book of Mormon is a book that came after the New Testament, like way after the New Testament. And so that's why both Catholics and Protestants reject the Book of Mormon. Um, the Book of Mormon is also based on the fact that the church got super corrupt after Jesus ascended into heaven, um, which both Protestants and Catholics have an issue with because Jesus said, you know, go and this is this is my church. Like he basically established a church and then said that the church will live forever and the church is, you know, infallible and that he'll live through the church. And he gave this authority to Peter and Christians um, saying to carry on the church. Well, the Mormon belief system is based off the fact that both of those church or that church that he uh, gave authority to got very corrupt shortly after he ascended into heaven um, and so that's why they accept this other book. So basically, I'm going to go into a whole podcast about what Mormons uh, believe and how they got that belief. But basically, it's kind of a non-question because it's really not in the debate of it becomes not applicable because uh, the only thing that Catholics and Protestants debate about the biblical canon is the Old Testament, and everyone's pretty agreed on the New Testament and that the church is then carried forward through Peter in the New Testament. So uh, I just wanted to touch back on that one because it just became, I wanted to circle back, as the press secretary would say, just because it was, it kind of became, I, I went in thinking that it was probably going to be relevant because I thought the canon was just basically open. 
Um, but it turns out that is, that is not the case. So again, we'll all do a whole other podcast episode about that because I've been really researching Mormonism, uh, as well. And dang, it is very interesting about what, how the beliefs got there. The current, the, the common thread I'm realizing through all these is that every set of belief systems is logical. If you take like an assumption at the beginning, so like the Mormons, uh, their assumption is that the church got corrupt and so there had to they had to be restored. And so the Mormons are the restoration of the corrupt church. Catholics assume make the assumption that the church, their, their church, has ultimate authority for the canon. Um, you know, so and then from there everything is logical. So it's like, oh, purgatory isn't out of left field. It's logical because the Catholics made this the canon this way, and this is included in the canon, and it's every one of these systems is not just out of left field. Um, you just have to know where the root of it is and what the root assumption was, uh, and then follow the logic from there. So anyway, that was pretty long. This episode's getting up there in time. So, um, that is going to be all for today. If you have any questions or further resources or articles on this, uh, DM me, send me those articles and videos and all of that. I'll link all of my sources in the show notes so you can go look at those because this blue letter Bible is so in depth. It's like pages and pages and pages. And there's like seven different website pages that are like a novel. So, um, it's very good to go dig into those and, uh, get the ones that I didn't feel were maybe as important or the crux of the argument for me. Um, so anyway, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Um, I think next week I'm going to be talking about the gender pay gap. I want to go a more political one because I've been doing a lot of kind of faith-based ones. So we're going to go gender pay gap. And then at some point, uh, I don't know, maybe in like five or six weeks, I'm going to be starting a series of biblical heroes. So, um, also DM me your favorite, uh, biblical characters or, or people. And, uh, cause I'm going to choose, I think six, I think it's going to be a six week series. So I'm going to choose six different ones and do uh, a deep dive on one person per week. So uh, I would love your input about who you want to hear about. And, um, yeah, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening everyone. And, uh, I really appreciate all of your support. All right. See you next week. Bye. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our millennial learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8am Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a millennial learns. Go check me out. Follow me, DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday.